0: Hi, it's the 13th of October, and uh, there's an article in the Guardian today from a guy I quite respect and quite like, Benjamin Zephaniah, the the poet. It's written in part as a, a contribution to or a response um, uh, to Black History Month, um, which began, I think, with uh, Linda, as he says, with Linda Bellis in London, and has now become something much larger. I think the month of October is Black History Month. Now, Zephaniah's main claim is that there won't be any respect for black people, um, as a either as a people or, I suspect, as individuals, until their history is respected. So Black History Month is important because it uh, provides an opportunity for people to confront uh, the existence of black history and the lack of respect for black history, which he thinks will be uh, instrumental once people understand that uh, there is a, a counter-history to the one that's normally taught. Um, then they'll have more respect for the people who are identified with that history. Now, I'll say later on some of the, the issues I have with the article, but I'll try and, as much as possible, give a gloss of what he claims um, first. Um, because he does say that um, Linda Bellis and others, including himself, have rightly grasped that being black is not just about being having a colour. And that's, I think, one of the greatest problems in his argument. Uh, but I'll come to that later on. So it, make, it makes the claim that um, that black is not a colour, it's a different kind of identity, um, and other things therefore follow uh, by way of addressing the prejudice and discrimination and uh, other problems associated uh, with being a member of the black community. Uh, and as I say, there's a great difficulty once you claim that, um, that blackness is not principally about um, other people's uh, ridiculous generalisation about your characteristics based on your colour because this whole argument by Zephaniah collapses into a, a claim about um, prejudice, um, which is hugely problematic given what he first says about his own treatment and the treatment of others and, and what the basis for that was. So he's making quite a complicated argument, and I'm not certain it's a coherent argument. But, uh, but what he claims is that the treatment he received from the authorities, both educational and law enforcement, um, was bad and it was bad in part because they didn't think that he was valuable because they didn't think his history was valuable so he sees human beings um, as being judged by other human beings as being part of groups that have narratives that are worth respecting or not so if, you, if you're, if you're presumed to be a part of a group that doesn't have a valued history then you yourself won't be treated as an individual with respect by others, because they'll see themselves as being part of a more valuable history. And I'll come to that again later on as well, because I think uh, that was nailed in a wreath lecture a few years ago, uh, rather wonderfully, uh, by an academic. So, the, as, as and I probably rightly says, um, that the history that black people are taught, and, and white people, uh, is by and large a history of um, European peoples and civilisations, in, in inverted commas, acting on black people. So it's a, it's a history of slavery and colonialism and empire um, which places um, black folk as being the acted upon rather than the actor. There's a, a theory in uh, film and television studies I think called something like The Look and uh, it resulted from an academic noticing just how many times in the movies a woman was represented looking at a man doing something significant or heroic uh, and, and it was, it's one of these things once it's been pointed out to you, you realise it does happen a lot. So uh, the, the, the folk that um, are the authors of the history, which is then taught, becomes part of the core curriculum in the schools uh, and the universities, uh, they see the rest of the world as being the, the, the canvas in which European uh, adventures were written, and that then gets taught to people. And of course that then becomes part of uh, the, the problem that Zephaniah identifies that if you're then seen to be part of the culture that was acted upon, then you seem to be less valuable than those who are part of the uh, culture that uh, was the, the actor. Uh, I remember something being said when I was 18, which kind of shocked me even then, because the 1980s were not particularly liberal, the 1970s were worse. Although I think in, in, it was more complex than people realised. But somebody said something at 18 they said something about a black person who had a, a name the same as their own, and they said, my ancestors owned your ancestors. And that, you know, that, that kind of mentality, I think, is what um, Zephaniah is talking about, although it's raised to a much uh, more um, elevated level by the people who write histories. So um, the, the history that uh, Zephaniah juxtaposes to the history that he was taught as a young man is what he calls reggae history. He found a counter narrative um, in the in the reggae artists, and he uh, nurtured that on uh, on weekends and Saturdays. He and his pals, I think, um, understood themselves differently by looking at um, what the reggae artists said about the the experience that uh, that he and others, or at least those from his community, um, had had. Um, so he he finds this counter narrative when he's young, which, um, having read some other stuff that he says, was pretty liberating for him. Uh, because he he was left without an identity. He was a very good athlete, but the way he was spoken to and treated by others meant that he was left without an identity. So he found his identity in this counter-history produced by the reggae artists. He also says some stuff about the way he was treated when he was young. He says he was beaten more often by the the police than by the National Front. And again, as I've said, he he sees the the, um, fundamental bedrock assumption made by the police that allowed them to behave in the way that they did Um, a belief that his status was um, an irrelevance. He wasn't thought to have rights and status and dignity because he belonged to a people who lacked a history Um, and therefore it was possible to treat him as being less uh, worthy of respect. He also says that the people who were behaving like this in the 1970s are now in respectable jobs. Now, I don't think he means that literally they're in respectable jobs. So if you were a, a thug in the 1970s, um, in your late teens, you're now in your mid-60s uh, in a respectable job. I don't think that's what he can mean, and I presume he doesn't. Um, although some some of them might be, I suppose. But I think more what he means is that the kind of people who found it um, impossible uh, to, to hold respectable positions um, have become uh, respectable now. Or alternatively, I suppose, he could be claiming that... Uh, the, uh, uh, the the racism of the 1970s um, was uh, overt in a way that the racism now isn't. So I suppose you might be saying that it's the respectability that's changed. So it's not that there weren't racists in powerful positions in the 1970s. It was just that there's a different kind of uh, way it operates now. Uh, that a, a lot of black uh, artists have claimed that things like commissioning editors and, and the kind of judgments that are made in, in arts and culture are different. It's quite hard to be taken seriously. Um, in some uh, areas, even if it's easy to be taken seriously in others. Um, So perhaps that's what he's saying. But anyway, he says that racism is now um, possible for people in respectable jobs. And uh, he says the racists of the 1970s have found themselves in these jobs. Presumably not the actual people, but the types of people. That therefore leads to what he calls a systemic kind of racism, uh, a systemic kind of brutality. They can distribute it, as he says, from their office desks. So they don't have to be beating him up in the streets. Um, they can now do things uh, through positions of power. Um, and he uh, he goes on to claim, for example, that uh, anti-immigration... He doesn't name Nigel Farage, he doesn't name um, the Leave movement, but he says that anti-immigration rhetoric um, has its... Uh, It's veneer of respectability as a claim about patriotism. The people who are opposed to immigration claim that they're they're, they're patriotic and they want to defend uh, that which is valuable. They're not actually hostile to immigrants. Um, And he says this is just a veneer. It's just a a nonsense. Similarly, the nonsense of free speech. There's a big debate, obviously, at the moment on so-called no-platforming. And the government has taken action against some of the universities uh, because of the tolerance they've shown for no-platforming activities from their students. And uh, again, Zephaniah says that free speech and balance are used as fig leaves to cover racism. So it's got a new, a new kind of uh, respectability, a new kind of uh, power structure that allows it to operate in a way that it didn't before. So, he therefore um, chooses to place a construction in some of the stuff we've seen in America and Britain you know, that would irritate a lot of people. He talks about uprisings. Now, the key point about an uprising, of course, is that the people who are exercising authority are illegitimate. All legitimate authority, as John Stuart Mill says, depends on it being exercised for the benefit of the people over whom it is exercised. That's what authority is, as opposed to raw power. So he talks about uprisings, and as I say, the point about an uprising is that the people who are victims of the the autocrats um, are legitimate in their opposition. So he says that what we've been seeing um, in uh, in the West over the last presumably seven or eight months um, is, uh, is an uprising. And he, d- he doesn't mention Colston, but presumably Colston's statue in Bristol and a number of other statues as well that have been attacked, vandalised, taken down. He says more must go. But if everything that should, in one sense, go, went, then there might be nothing left. We might have nothing left at all. That's how dominant he thinks this uh, oppressive culture is. He essentially claims that the entirety of the culture um, is potentially um, uh, to be dispensed with because it's uh, uh, redolent of a narrative of dominance that could easily be thought to be so loathsome it should all be consigned. So he, he says that much will have to go, other other things will have to be uh, relabeled, uh, placards, will, plaques will have to be put on them to tell the story of what actually was done. So some of it can stay but be changed. Because if we try to get rid of everything that could be got rid of legitimately, there'd be nothing left. So, um, he also makes the claim that what's happening now is for him and probably probably for others, relevant of what's happened before. So George Floyd's death, for example, uh, reminds him of his cousin's death at the hands of the police uh, and other acts of oppression and, and victimisation uh, and violence. This all reminds him of, of things that have happened to people that he knows. So he, he, he doesn't see what's happening now as being particularly different from the, in character from what's happened before. Um, the uh, the oppressiveness that uh, he identifies as a running theme through his life for the last 40, 50 years continues. Um, the specifics today um, are as they are, but what is happening is part of a broader uh, problem that's presumably centuries long. He concedes that black history is... Um, pluralistic and much of it bad in the sense that it uh, it, it describes terrible behaviour on the part of people who are uh, black, um, and therefore it's not that uh, the, uh, the the Robert Mugabe's of this world are uh, are to be exonerated because they're black. Um, much that's been written uh, that condemns, for example, post-colonial sub-Saharan Africa, um, is 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 correctly. Um, Condemnatory. The, the behaviour was appalling. So there's nothing special about black history um, that means it will all be a story of people behaving well. Much of it is, is a story of people behaving badly. However, um, the, uh, the the story, the Writers Guild story that he wants to take part in, he's, he's involved with the Writers Guild, the Black Writers Guild, and he wants to frame the past um, in order to shape the framing of the, of the future and future actions. So he sees history as very much... um, an activity for black scholars so as to shape um, a black future this is just in passing slightly inconsistent with what he says about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and how he's pleased that it has become um, largely white Um, he attended an event that was overwhelmingly white, it was as he said spot the black person so there's there's something slightly inconsistent in in the, the view that he takes of the importance of the Black Writers Guild and the view he takes of what's happened to the Black Lives Matter movement But that's by the by. Um, And he does say that uh, there's an ongoing problem um, with integration um, of black issues, black history, black lives matter, into the political discourse. And again, that's slightly inconsistent with what he he says um, about some other things. Um, He sees the, the special month of October as being a token, or certainly spoken about as if it were a token by politicians. But of course, it's necessarily going to appear like that to some degree if it is a specific month. So you so might be reading too much into the way they speak about it. So that's the gist of his article. Um, that's what he claims. Um, and it's part, as I say, of a broader uh, Guardian uh, narrative about race and patriotism and ethnicity and immigration and law and politics that I'd uh, like to say something about The first thing that occurred to me when I read this article was a, a quite brilliant um, series of wreath lectures a few years ago by Kwame Antony Apaya. And he said something really interesting. His running theme, the leitmotif of the whole thing, was the idea of Western civilization and why it wasn't what you think it is, and why you can't be part of Western civilization just because you're from uh, Europe or, and, and white you actually have to read Shakespeare you can't just reference it or or claim to know something about it because you it's not it's not biological you can't you don't acquire a knowledge of Shakespeare or a knowledge of Aristotle's politics by being born in in the uk or or in Greece and it struck me that that's in large part what Zephaniah and I was talking about a kind of cultural conceit and there might be something in it it might be the case that in actual fact lots of uh, white Europeans think that they're particularly special because the dominant story of um, humanity is one that's full of uh, Europeans in particular, others as well as North Americans to some extent, but it's a story of Europeans and it might be that there's something in that, there might be there's a, a certain kind of arrogance that's built into people because they wrongly think that uh, because they belong to a certain uh, ethnic group, they must necessarily have the, the knowledge and skills and characteristics of that group. Um, a bit like putting on a, a Manchester City uh, top and imagining that uh, that you can play football. So I mean, there may be something in that. Uh, Peter Medawar wrote a book called uh, Pluto's Republic years ago, and uh, it was because he was so frustrated with people um, saying things that were... Not only nonsensical, but ridiculous. They weren't prepared to do the hard yards. So he was talking to someone at a party, and uh, she was talking about how much she loved philosophy. She was a great fan of Pluto's Republic. <laughs> and uh, I think Medivar found that a bit wearing. There's a saying in Scotland which is that you, you speak as you find. And uh, I think that that should be an ideal. You, you don't presume that somebody's going to have certain characteristics because of what they are uh, supposedly a part of ethnically, so it might be the case, for example, that there is a culture of feuding uh, among Albanians, uh, the law of lek. But just because someone's Albanian, you don't assume that they participate in the law of lek and might be more likely to feud with you. So I think there's a, there's a great deal of truth in that. I think it's true that um, the, uh, the the the, ten- the human tendency to try and place people. Uh, if someone comes from North America, there's a there's a tendency to assume they must have certain characteristics. When of course, they might be very, very different. They might be, and the United States is hugely uh, pluralistic. Um, somebody said that the great thing about Persians, uh, Iranians, was that they, they tended not to blame people for the, the characteristics or, or actions of their governments. And I think uh, if that is true, it's a very valuable thing in the world because people don't necessarily subscribe to what their, their country does. So I think it's, it's probably the case as if and has got a point. Um the trouble is that his argument about black history um, looks like a continuation of that kind of daft prejudgment-only modified. So what he seems to be saying is that at the moment people have got a prejudice, and it's a, it's a very bad prejudice. So what we have to do is modify that prejudice by giving them a better understanding of what black people actually participate in. But the trouble is that if you're a, if you're a black person and you don't listen to Benjamin Zephaniah, um, or anybody else, if you do, if you haven't read uh, Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, um, then or you know uh, if if you want to go to to Asia, uh, Vikram Seth's The Suitable Boy, if you if you don't participate in what he would presumably consider to be black culture, um, then you're doing exactly the same thing as uh, was rightly identified by Apaya when it comes to white people claiming to participate in, in Western civilization. So it looks as if what um, Zephaniah is talking about is a continuation of a kind of daft prejudice, only a modification and improvement of it. And uh, I think the, the traditional um, Scottish view would be that it would be better to actually, you know, take people as you find them and recognise that, as Burns says, "A man's a man for all that." So you know, stop looking at um, the card a lord who struts and stares and all that, um, and assume that because he struts and stares and he's a lord, he must have some personal qualities. It'd be better to get past all that altogether. Would be the I think the, the Scottish view. Um, I think also as well, there's there's a, a tremendous danger in uh, the uh, um, you know l- rush to judgment regarding um, colour and ethnicity. And I think colour is a better way of thinking about it because, of course, the, the, the skin colour is a very very minor thing. It's, it's it's almost completely irrelevant. It's just a vitamin D adaptation and. Uh, some of the things that we see today, you would actually have to be a racist to reach the conclusion that you, you reach. Um, I've just finished reading Dottie Charles's book um, on outrage, and she talks about her own reaction to the H&M uh, sweatshirt um, fiasco or, or outrage uh, incident from a few years ago. Uh, the black kid, the model, uh, wearing a, 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 a hoodie that said something about the coolest monkey in the jungle. And you'd actually have to be you know, either acutely aware of racism or a borderline or outright racist yourself before your eye would be drawn to that and the, and the necessary um, connotations um, recognized. That's just something, as she, as she said, you know, she had to look at it a lot to try and think herself into the, the mindset required to be appropriately outraged for the group of people that she normally identifies with. So the, 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 there are problems um, in in the UK at the moment, caused by the desire to move to a new, better liberal settlement. Because the UK people forget the UK is an incredibly liberal country compared to others. And one of the things we do is we we recharacterise our past um, in order to feel worse about our present. And the trouble with that is it would be it would be victimless if it didn't lead to worse policies in the future we seem to forget that we were the people who brought in the Race Relations Act in the 1970s. You know, we criminalised racism when others practised it routinely. And when others required it, we criminalised it. The Race Relations Act was a phenomenally powerful piece of legislation. Um, It it did away with much that was otherwise required to be proven in terms of a mens rea, a guilty mind. And it basically said, if your actions are likely to promote racial hatred, then you're going to get done for it. So... I mean, I, 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 at the moment, um, my 1975, 10-year-old understanding of what was done with television in the 1970s is um, only, that, that understanding is only for people like me. If you watch, um, it was all right in the, in the 70s on television, if you watch uh, people reacting to Alf Garnet and Love Thy Neighbour, um, it's absolutely the, the case that there's only one way to react, and that is complete outrage. The trouble is that if you look at how people in the 1970s reacted to these programmes, these were hugely liberal programmes. The the joke was on Alf Garnet. The black neighbours got the upper hand every single week. If we look at the Simpsons and Apu, Apu is the most intelligent, educated, functional member of the community. Apu is the person who, when he does his citizenship exams, um, is so far ahead of everybody else in his understanding that um, he makes it obvious that they are Vulgarians. Um, if you look at um, the uh, King of the Hill, um, the, the character of the, the father, the outrageous Texan redneck um, father, he's the one who actually understands Southeast Asian culture and understands that the next door neighbour is Laotian um, and they understand something about his culture. So, And, and that again is, a, is, a, is an American attempt to do exactly what was done by uh, the writers in, in Love Thy Neighbour um, in, the, in the 1970s you're actually stigmatising the the others who imagine themselves to be terribly liberal, as in point of fact being ignorant of the details they would need to have an appropriately defensible liberal position. And one of the problems we've got in the UK is, and I hesitate to mention it, but I am going to, um, we ended up tolerating outrageous, disgusting behaviour in particular places like Rotherham for decades, precisely because uh, a narrative was shaped about what it was to be liberal and what it was to be progressive. Uh, and it meant that it was impossible for the cops to do their job for fear of being labelled racists. So the, um, the 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 story that's been told about what it is to be black um, in the UK uh, by by Zephaniah um, is one that I think is... is it's not completely on tenet. It's not without its, its truth value, but it's so far from being complete, it needs to be uh, addressed. I remember the 1980s, he talks about um, Bellas in London, Um, and I remember my my friend policing London in the 1980s and 1990s, and I remember um, his frontline experience of some of the consequences of the shenanigans that were going on in London in the 1980s. I remember in particular him talking about the uh, Kilburn Irish recognising that they too could apply for grants based on their ethnicity. Um, just as others had successfully done. And therefore, you know, there was a sponsorship of a, of a drinking culture based on Irish heritage, um, and it was widely seen by all participating as being a, nothing short of a scam. But it was a scam that was hard to oppose because of all the concessions that had been made before that to other groups based on their so-called hyphenated identity. And, of course, this caused a massive Thatcherite reaction. Um, it was seen that local authorities were becoming uh, hotbeds of a kind of uh, student radicalism, student radicalism with rocket boosters and access to public funds. So the, uh, the, the story of, of what it is to be um, black and British or black and Londoner um, has to contain things like, for example, the hyphenation of groups of Londoners in the 1980s and then all that followed from that in the way of uh, bad practice. Um, at the moment, of course, um, we have this new explosion of diversity training and certain Tory politicians saying they're not going to participate, and attacks being made on the coherence of the diversity training, and I think President Trump has just acted against um, this diversity training. And it's it's worth noting, I think, the extent to which this becomes uh, an industry. Um, it becomes the case that any, anything that involves the possibility of rent seeking will probably attract rent seekers, and if you if you don't recognise that a man's a man for all that and there are good black folk, bad black folk, and black folk in the middle. Um, just as there are terrible police officers, uh, great police officers, and everything in between. If you don't recognise that folk are folk, then you end up in a situation where you can't actually oppose what needs to be opposed. Like, for example, the growth of an industry um, of nebulous, um, perhaps harmful, uh, public sector provision. Uh, The the, the Wednesday Guardian uh, in the 1980s and 1990s became a standing joke. Uh, The number of jobs that were available in places like Islington Council, where it was almost impossible to work out what good could be done by this highly paid job. Legal departments um, who were full of non-lawyers, who were appointed for reasons that were hard to discern. So, as I say, the the story of of Britain and its its, uh, minority communities it's a complicated story, and uh, I think when you look at I'm to, I, again, you know I don't really care who I, I upset. If you look at some of the things that Don Butler says and does, for example, um, it seems that she's uh, making full use um, of the position that she's been granted and the fear that people have about identifying correctly bad behavior. Her behavior seems to me in many ways bad, um, straightforwardly bad. But people are frightened to call it out, to use the modern expression, because they're frightened of being called racists. And uh, the, the idea that black people um, are incapable of recognising uh, how to utilise uh, anti-racist policies and rhetoric just seems false. I was at university uh, with a very good amateur boxer called William Gully uh, from South Africa, and he, uh, he coerced the Bank of Scotland in, in Byers Road to give him a loan when they wouldn't give a loan to any um, foreign students because it was unenforceable. And Willie laughed about it at the boxing club. Uh, he talked about how, um, he says, all you have to do to terrify people is start talking about racism and then they give in very, very quickly. And he'd done it quite deliberately. He told us he was going to do it and he, and he did it and it worked. And I think if we, if we can't see that folk are prepared to make use of what they have, then in, in many ways we actually diminish them. We rob them of their identity we make it the case that we, uh, we presume that they're daft. No, they aren't daft, you know. Um, uh, Joe Biden um, says something completely crass about the intelligence of black folk. Allow me to say something quite precise. Black folk are every bit as smart as anybody else, uh, as are, you know, uh, the, the people from Southeast Asia and people from the Russian Federation, everybody else. There's only one species, Homo sapiens sapiens. The differences between us are completely irrelevant. Um, There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever of any difference in in, in cognition. There's some evidence um, of uh, things like, for example, most of the great distance runners coming from East Africa and most of the great sprinters coming from West Africa. There are a few small differences, it seems, in the prevalence of things like fast twitch fibres or the genes that are responsible for high oxygen consumption. But there's no evidence at all um, that people vary in any other regard. And the idea that the black community is not going to contain exactly the same number of folk who are prepared to make use of a system to advance their interests is actually uh, offensive. Um, the, uh, the community is going to contain exactly the same number of, of folk as any other community who are prepared to make use of what the world offers them by way of channels for self-advancement. Um, and indeed, American politics has seen uh, a lot of dreadful behaviour by career politicians who've made full use of what uh, the political environment offers them uh, to, to advance their own personal interests. So it is hugely offensive to claim that, you know, every, every white person is necessarily going to be a non-criminal because the dominant civilisation um, in the world that has produced most of the literature that people find valuable is European. That's just crass. The idea you can participate in in in, in European civilization, if you want to call it that, or white civilization, if you want to call it that, however whatever label you choose to apply, but the idea you can participate in that civilization just by dint of your uh, your ethnic heritage is just offensive, and it's similarly offensive to claim that every black person um, must be uh, so angelic or so witless that they can't see the opportunity afforded them by procedures and policies. Um, that, that lend themselves to, to use. Of course they can. Dottie Charles says something interesting about uh, Rachel Dolazal, I think her name was, the woman in the, uh, in the States who became quite a prominent uh, black activist, a black uh, lives activist, um, and uh, a representative, I think, for the National Association of Advancement of Colour People, and uh, was entirely, um, as far as we can see, of, of European heritage. But she did her hair up in a certain way and presented herself, claimed to be black. And uh, despite the fact her parents are absolutely Northern European. Um, and uh, what was interesting was one sociology professor defended Dolazar and said something interesting, which was relation to Zephaniah's point about uh, being black is not just about... Or, or, he actually says not about skin colour. The, the sociology professor said, you can't lie about a lie. And it's an interesting point. Um, the idea of race is just so nonsensical right from the outside that um, it, it, it's so, it falls apart in your hands under, under any kind of analysis and examination. Consequently, um, it doesn't mean enough to actually be worthy of consideration, intellectual consideration. And this is the big problem, I think, or one of the major problems with Zephaniah's piece. Because if he talks about skin colour and he talks about ethnicity and culture and he talks about indefensible prejudice, then he's on solid ground. Um, But if he talks about um, black as being uh, something that's actually conceptually valuable, if you want to say there's a thing called being black, black history, um, black literature and so on, if you want to say that Chinua Achebe and Vikram Seth both both fit into uh, a thing called black literature, what you're really doing is you're starting with something which is completely loathsome, nebulous and empty, which was the previous problem of prejudice imposed on people. Um, and then you're claiming that it's actually got conceptual value and should be used then um, to, to produce a, a, a counterculture, if you like. Now, I can, I can, at one level I can see why that might work. Because if it's, if it's the case that people who are being oppressive have put a whole of the folk in one category, then there's some possible strategic advantage in putting all the people's output uh, and and artefacts and culture in uh, a rival category and, and, as it were, firing it back at them. So I can kind of see that there might be an instrumental use, uh, a short-term practical political use in accepting the definition of black that's been imposed by people who are in positions of authority in order to actually produce a counter-narrative. But it would have to be a short-term measure. Because if, for the sake of argument, the category black um, is meaningless in the same way that the category white is meaningless. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, Northern European appearance um, and uh, I, can have, I can have Czechs and Russians walk up to me at parties and say, I'll do the accent, You, you look like a Russian. Um, so if, if I look like a Russian, um, that might be one thing, but I'm absolutely not a Russian in any regard whatsoever. So there's nothing Russian about me in any way. Uh, I am I am fully Scots, fully British, so the the idea that I could be somehow similar to uh, a Russian, some in some meaningful sense, is just nonsense. Um, the fact that our skins reflect the same amount of light um, is just meaningless. So the, the difficulty in Zephaniah's approach is that he he wants to claim um, as conceptually meaningful something which really is meaningless. And what needs to happen is that the people who might be misusing ethnicity, um, claiming wrongly to be participants in some dominant culture and using that as a pretext to behave badly, that needs to stop. Um, So we we need an end to the prejudice uh, and and using the category in which the prejudice is predicated and claiming it to be meaningful looks to me to be a mistake or at the very least only a short term strategy, only something you could do um, in order to counter uh, a kind of stupidity that should never have started in the first place. There's a further problem when it comes to the idea of history. Uh, Michael Oakeshott, the philosopher, drew a distinction between history and practical history. And history is the best account of past that we're obliged to believe because it does the best job of reconstructing the evidence. Then there's practical history, which Oakeshott said is what we use to make ourselves feel at home in the world. So the, the, the so-called Whig history, uh, the story of the growth of liberty in, in the United Kingdom, isn't necessarily good history. But it's the history that we use to tell ourselves stories, to feel at home. Um, So that the Scots tell themselves stories about, uh, whatever, John Knox or William Wallace, in order to root themselves in an idea uh, which makes them feel at home in the world. Um, But that's not proper history. Proper history is the best account you've got, given documentary sources, um, such as to make a coherent uh, whole, a coherent explanatory whole. So when Zephaniah talks about history... Much of the time he seems to be talking about um, practical history. Certainly when it comes to Reggie, uh, that seems to me to be practical history. It doesn't seem to me to be a really serious attempt to reconstruct a story. Um, And the other problem as well is that the story that, um, for example, take for example Boris Johnson, who would not normally be thought to be um, a a victim of, of some dominant oppressive culture. Boris Johnson's study at university was entirely about Greeks and Romans, um, and what you what we study is, uh, in particular, when it comes to history, depends on what we have. Uh, we are left records, so the, the the British will define an entire period as Dark Ages, um, because there's little known. Uh, and if, if Boris goes to university and studies um, whoever I don't know, Thucydides, I suppose, Cicero, if he if he studies what's available because you know it forms the curriculum, then it, it is what it is. It's not that, uh, that Boris has been, or, or that the British have been um, colonised by ideas that are Greek and Roman. It's that when you're trying to have a literature that lends itself to proper study, you take what you have. Um, Hobbes wrote Leviathan. Um, if he'd written something else, uh, or if he hadn't written at all, we wouldn't be able to use it as an object of study. But it's got the right kind of integrity and complexity and sophistication to make it an appropriate object of study. And the, the problem with what Zephaniah seems to think about history is that it seems to be something indistinguishable from um, the, the practical history that O'Shott talks about and even the kind of um, stupid prejudice that motivates the, the police uh, of the 1970s that he complains about. Because it seems to be less than, an, less than an academic engagement that liberates the individual and gives them a mind and more about a narrative that gives them a place. And the point about study is, I mean, the, the, most, the most interesting thing about Benjamin Zephaniah is not that he's black, it's that he's Benjamin Zephaniah. The most interesting thing about me is not that I'm a, a Scot or a Brit, it's that I'm me. So if, if for the sake of argument you study in order to become fully you, then you use um, Leviathan, Hobbes Leviathan, not to become a person who believes in the importance of British sovereignty, but to become yourself, fully literate and thinking self. Um, And and as I say, one of the difficulties in in, in Zephaniah's whole approach is that it's about identity. And that kind of group identity, I would have thought, was exactly the problem. Edward Said um, made an interesting point about Orientalism, the the, the tendency to see everything east of Suez as being exotic. And there's an interesting contrast. When I was reading Zephaniah's article, it occurred to me that Africa is, of course, in the European imagination, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which is quite a different thing from uh, Edward Said's Orientalism. So it might be that um, the the kind of prejudice that uh, folk who are recognisably sub-Saharan African, it might be the kind of prejudice they face is very different from the prejudice that uh, others have faced in the past if they're they're east of Suez. But as I was reading the article, one of the things that occurred to me was that post-2001 um, the prejudice that people suffer um, east of Suez is very different. Uh, they are now subject to a kind of uh, sweeping judgment, which is very different from the, uh, the the view that was taken pre-2001. And you wonder, therefore, whether um, you really have the kind of deep-rooted historical, and in inverted commas, uh, judgment that Zephaniah thinks about, or whether it's much more volatile than that, So what you actually have is politics, and then it's gilded with history. So the 9-11 attacks take place, and then all of a sudden, Edward Said's Orientalism has got no purchase in the world whatsoever, uh, because all of a sudden you get a a new prejudice. And that new prejudice is arrived at very rapidly, um, and for practical political reasons. And then it's um, surrounded by whatever you need. Uh, For example, we start talking about slave markets. We start talking about the continuation of slavery in North Africa and in the, in the Middle East. Nobody cared about the continuance of slave markets before the 9-11 attacks. But then the history of North African slavery, the Barbary pirates or whatever, is resurrected in order to lend force to the, the view that you take of the Maghreb and the Middle East um, following the 9-11 attacks. So you wonder whether, in, in reality, the history is important or whether the practical politics is continually being infused with just the right amount of the right kinds of history in order to give it what it needs. Um, I was listening to somebody talking about the Republican Party in the United States and the, the widespread belief that it's the Democrats who uh, ended slavery um, and, uh, the, and that the Civil War um, was, was prim- primarily a, a, a Democrat um, uh, enterprise and in, in human liberation, when, of course, it was the Republican Party that not only um, ended the, the, the dominance um, of, of black folk in the South, but then destroyed um, the, a lot of the, uh, the the white power structures for for long enough um, and then used federal power in the 20th century to try as much as possible to advance a, a national agenda of... of um, Prosperity. It was the Republicans and the federal government who first actually crossed the, crossed the lines that separated federal and state responsibilities, like spending money in education and other things, hadn't been done before. So that, that you wonder whether the, the history is really informative, or whether there's just enough of it picked up to suit the prejudices of the day. And if that were true, then things like Black History Month might not have much currency, because um, the, uh, the, the, the thing that's happening isn't what you think it is. So just to conclude um, just there seems to be two things that, that need to be said about um, the modern world and no platforming and free speech and culture. Two obvious things I think. The first thing that's obvious it seems to me is that the uh, if there is a hege- hegemonic um, cultural elite if there is a group of people who've imposed views um, it's over. The BBC can't even secure a reliable government funding in the future. It's the uh, easiest thing in the world to gain a platform uh, for any of you. Now, you can argue that content um, channels like YouTube have themselves got an agenda. You can argue that uh, there's, a, there's a kind of um, ongoing prejudice that makes it impossible for certain voices to be heard. So you can, you can argue that uh, the universities or something else is responsible for making a market where it's impossible for countercultural ideas to be sold, as possible, you can argue that um, the, the the capitalist organisations like YouTube have got an agenda, and therefore you know certain things are done to prioritise certain views. But even then, even then, it seems to me obvious that uh, the the people who might have been the, the cultural brokers, the political entrepreneurs, the uh, the voices of of um, culture, they've lost control. Um, Benjamin Zephaniah can get his piece in The Guardian and I can't, but I can make this podcast up quite easily with a mobile phone. Um, so it, it would seem obvious that if, he, if he's right about um, what's been done in the marketplace for ideas, then the technology now re- requires therefore a, a very different explanation of what's going to be ha- the case in the future. And as it, seemed, it would seem to me on the face of it untenable that the schools and colleges and universities are so good at shaping the minds of people, that there can be no hearing for better explanations later on. If it really is the case, then that's a failure of education in terms of the skills it gives people, rather than the content it imposes on them. What we don't need, if that's true, is that the schools and colleges and universities become rival places for indoctrination. What we need is that indoctrination end and the students leave these places as autodidacts, and then the best ideas can win um, in a competition, so as I say, it would, it would seem to me fairly obvious that one of the things about the modern world, which is just you know, unavoidable and undeniable, is that the means of, of cultural reproduction or transmission have been—it's it's, it's been devolved and democratized to such an extent that it's very hard to claim that people can get a voice. You have to—you have to get involved in a very tendentious argument about um, culture and minds and education and hegemonic power. Uh, you, have to, you have to make some very outlandish claims about um, how what, what people are and how they operate before you can say it's impossible for ideas to get a, a hearing. And the second thing I think needs to be said just in conclusion is uh, am I a great big racist for criticising Benjamin's article and the argument he puts forward? Because one of the claims he makes about, for example, free speech is that it's a fig leaf that covers um, racism. Now. That, that then doesn't give the, the opponent um, of strategy, it doesn't give the, the person who's the, the, the friendly critic, it doesn't give them anywhere to go really, uh, because if they want to avoid the label, then they have to avoid being the friendly critic or, or the opponent. So I hope I'm not a, a raving, inveterate racist who doesn't understand his own character. I don't think I am. But, uh, but I'd, one thing I do know is that if we get into the habit of labelling each other in that way, it's not going to be possible to have a liberal democracy, uh, I don't think. But anyway, peace.